Welcome to Revenue Champions, I'm Alice. And I'm John. We interview leaders, experts, and entrepreneurs in the B2B space. Giving you the inside tips, tricks, and hacks for you to grow and scale your B2B business today. Hi, welcome to another episode of Revenue Champions. This one, we're kicking off a new series, which is our Marketing Hall of Fame. And I'm really excited to be interviewing Mark, who is Director of Growth at Metadata for this first Hall of Fame episode. We have picked Metadata to uh, spotlight in our Hall of Fame because of some of the amazing things that they've been doing. They had a phenomenal virtual event recently called Demand 21. They've run the ABM Isn't campaign and they've been using some great B2C tactics in their B2B marketing. All of these things we're going to deep dive now and get some tactical insights from Mark on what's driven them to this great success. So Mark, it would be great if you could now give us a, a better intro to yourself and also metadata on what you guys do. I don't know. That was quite the intro. I just hope you invited the right person and I don't disappoint. <laughs> so yeah, my name is Mark Huber. I'm a director of growth at Metadata. I've been at Metadata for about a year and a half or so. And I was actually a Metadata customer at my last company. Um, so pretty familiar with the product and the audience. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with Metadata at all, we are a demand generation platform that lets B2B marketers run paid campaign experiments that self-optimize to revenue. Amazing. Um, yeah. And so just to give a bit of context to this series, we are looking to interview um, some of the best marketing leaders and brains out there in the business and get really tactical on the tactics um, that they are implementing right now and dig into some of the detail and yeah, get get a look under the hood, so to speak. So I love it. <laughs> going to kick off by asking you a question that I read one of your recent LinkedIn posts and it was really interesting to me. And it was about how customer advisory boards um, are the cheat code for good B2B marketing. And I love this because I think there's a lot of talk about how like good B2B marketing comes from knowing your customers, but there's not necessarily a lot of actionable insight on how to do that well and do it at scale. So I really liked this idea. So I'd like to know, how did you go about setting up like your customer advisory board at Metadata? Yep. What have you learned from it? How can others do it? Any lessons? Perfect. Yeah. So when I was at my last company, I was actually on the customer advisory board. So I think for me, it's a somewhat of a unique perspective because I've seen both sides. I've seen what it's like to participate on it and then what it's like to uh, host it. So for us, I forget the exact number, but we probably have somewhere in the range of 15 or 20 uh, customers on our customer advisory board. And they come from different size companies, different seniority levels, and it's basically different slices of what our ideal customer profile looks like so that we're getting legit feedback from different parts of the market and the different parts of the market that we need to serve. We meet, I would say about a month, uh, sorry, once a month. And I, I tend to use it a little bit more than I think some others might as well. So we are in contact, I'd say after and in between uh, the meetings. And I'm constantly using our customer advisory board for um, quick feedback on new campaigns that we want to launch. Anytime we're reworking messaging, they're very much involved and uh, always like using them uh, kind of as a last check. If something ever feels off or we don't think that it's going to land, um, I make sure to send them either a LinkedIn message or an email just to have them steer us straight. And so how do you get them to join in the first place? And then how do you keep them motivated and engaged with you? Um, mm -hmm. As yeah, obviously you're talking to them all the time. So it's, that's great. How do you do that? Yeah. So great question. So I'd say a couple of things. One, um, just the ability to impact and influence our roadmap. So they get to see the roadmap and they get to 
provide feedback and really prioritize which features and like big releases are most important to them. So as long as they're happy customers, that in itself is a big benefit to them because we can help make their lives easier, you know, at their own companies using metadata. Uh, the second part is there is a, a financial component to this. So we give them a small number of options uh, just to make it worth their while. And then the third benefit, which we don't really talk about, but I um, view it as a benefit. I love to feature them in our content and it doesn't have to be them just promoting metadata because I don't really like that. Um, but whenever I need, you know, uh, someone to come on our podcast or uh, be featured in a blog post or get a quote or a testimonial, I love using our cab members first because they almost act like ambassadors for metadata. Amazing. And then in terms of like a mode of communication, is it like a Slack channel or like how is that working in practice? Yep. So we have a Slack channel. Uh, we also have um, just like the regular recurring um, monthly meeting. Uh, and we do leave some time at the end for any of the cab members just to, to bring up big marketing things that are top of mind for them. Now, I'm very hard on myself and our own marketing. We are hiring for a customer marketing manager. And one of the big things that they will be owning for us is taking this customer advisory board and like blowing it out of the water. So I've got some good ideas coming and there's going to be a clear owner for this. So I think we're just scratching the surface in terms of what we can accomplish with this cap. Amazing. I mean, I think that's, yeah, it's just a really great tactical way in terms of being staying close to your customer and having that sounding board consistently. So on that note, I'm sure this was something that you did work on with your with your cab, but Demand 21 was your big online virtual event recently that you had. I think you had over 4,000 registrants. Um, I guess for me, I'm interested to know, like, why did you decide to run a virtual event to start with? Was it always the plan to run an event, whether that be virtual or in person? Um, and then how did you go about securing your all-star lineup of speakers? Because you had sort of the likes of Chris Walker, Dave Gerhardt. Um, and then was it successful for you and, and would you run it again? And how does it fit into the broader marketing strategy? Loads of questions there, I realize. So like, everything. <laughs> yeah, I think we got to, I'll try and tackle a few of those to start. So how did we come about uh, or come up with the idea? So for us, I register for quite a few uh, events very rarely do I attend live. And uh, I'd say I tend to look at the recordings and just, you know, what was actually said at those events. Most of them suck, to be totally honest. And I think most of them suck because it's either a blatant pitch slap is like what we like to call it, where they're just pitching you their product. And it's basically a virtual event masked as a sales pitch. Um, or it's like a subtle sales pitch and no one likes attending those. So what we did was we wanted to come up with an, uh, really an idea for a community event and come up with topics, most importantly, that we ourselves were interested in. And once we locked down on the topics, uh, then we figured out, okay, who are the people that we either have direct relationships with uh, or are kind of in our networks. And we began to match the speakers up to the topic. So the, really thing that we kept in the back of our heads the entire time was we want to create an event that we would attend ourselves. So what do we need to do to make that, you know, event happen? And we started with the content first, which I think was a big um, differentiator for us because the content, we had not really seen anything like that before. I think we may have unfortunately set the bar a little too high in year one when we do it again next year, but we've got some ideas on how we're going to change it next year too. Great. And then in terms of like how, how successful it was for you, obviously the amazing amount of registrants, but what was the goal mm -hmm. of, of the event? Like what, what was, what were your, the goals you set when you started? Like obviously not just from the registrations, but like. 
Yeah. So I think for us, it was, uh, it sounds uh, simple, but we just wanted to put on an event to kind of bring a little bit of uh, our own flair to B2B marketing. And then more importantly, punch above our weight class. I think for how big the event was, you would assume that it was put on by a company with a much larger team or more funding or whatever it may be. And we wanted to create some buzz within B2B demand gen. So for us, that was the, the real focus was how do we create an event for the community, not for metadata, and then trying to parlay that you know, through uh, many uh, virtual events next year and hybrid events and a, a much bigger demand 2022. Um, we did have some, uh, I'd say, sales goals around it too, just in terms of the number of opportunities that were created. Uh, we actually uh, met and exceeded those goals before the event actually started. So in some ways, it was great for our sales team that people were now interested in uh, demand and then the company that was hosting demand that led to a sales conversation and quite a few opportunities being generated. Amazing. Um, and then another thing that I think um, is great that I've seen you guys doing, and I think we talk about this a lot in B2B marketing, but how we can learn from B2C. Mm-hmm. But is the the idea that you have kind of stole you stole this incentive um, to sign up to the event when you ha- ran the five hundred dollar Airbnb gift card offer? So I guess like that's a great example of thinking outside the box, and I'm sure that helped generate a lot of those signups. What other tactics, like sort of B two C, have you tried or looking to try, and like how how are you thinking about those? Yeah, so. That was probably the most tactical B2C thing I think we've ever done. I like to take two just concepts from B2C. One is social proof. Uh, and social proof really isn't new to B2B, but I think the way in which uh, B2C companies use social proof and hammer their audience over the head with social proof, I try to do that too. So whether you see that throughout our website, whether you see that in new landing pages that we're launching, like I try to lead with social proof and also... Um, mix in social proof throughout the rest of the page, um, just because like that's how people buy. You see big names or people that you you know want to be in the company with, and if they're saying something like that about metadata or you know whatever company you work for, um, that holds a lot of weight in your audience's mind, and then sometimes it holds more weight than you know whatever you're writing on that page. And I'm totally fine with that. The other thing that I would say is more on the creative side of things. So we try to get a little uncomfortable when it comes to like the type of creative that we're putting out into the market, whether that's on our website, whether that's in some of our ad campaigns. Um, we're trying to just push the boundaries of what people think of you know, B2B marketing and B2B ad creative. And to be totally honest, when we launched our website earlier this year, there were even some things that I was uncomfortable with, uh, but it was a good kind of uncomfortable feeling. And we want to continue that in any of our marketing campaigns. Amazing. And did the gift card um, initiative, was that, were you able to track like how much many of like proportion of the registrants that drove and like how successful it was? Yeah, we were. Um, So we had about a hundred people that actually participated in that. Um, So we were more so tracking that. Now, what was really the benefit to us was not just people entering the contest, but then that was a hundred extra posts that people posted on LinkedIn to amplify the reach of really the contest and more importantly, the event itself. So we were amazed at the fact that that many people entered in the first place. And there were some really cool posts that were written too. So we were, you know, comfortable that we couldn't measure every single, you know, facet of that campaign, but between the the hundred posts that we got and just the buzz uh, within the market, it was, you know, more than worth it for uh, our own ROI measurement. 
Yeah, I mean, that's pretty cheap advertising, isn't it? $500. Yeah, seriously. So, <laughs> yeah, bargain. so I, I'd say it was the ROI was strong and it was only 1500 bucks that we had uh, for the Airbnb gift cards and, you know, $1,500 worth of advertising versus $1,500 worth of that. Like I would much rather take that. Yeah. Amazing. Um, okay. And this one I'm really interested in. So you actually just talking about how there was some stuff on the website that you're kind of uncomfortable with initially, and you're trying to push the boundaries. So I guess that might be ties into the whole rebranding. I know you recently went through, um, that process and we're actually just going into that right now. So I'm kind of, I, I'm just want to know, like, what what did you learn from it? How can organizations acknowledge when it's time for them to go through the process? I think sometimes, you know, we do it prematurely um, or unnecessarily, and sometimes we wait way too long. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess, has yours delivered on all the things that you set out to achieve from the start? And did you kind of really clearly set the goals for that as well? Yeah, so I would say the first thing is 100% do not start with the website. And I'll say it again, do not start with the website. And why that matters is if you start with the website, you're going to get it all wrong. So one of the things that um, like I did not want to do when I first started at Metadata in August of 2020 was start with the website. We hear from our own experience and from what you see on LinkedIn that like one of the biggest mistakes that you can make is just immediately uh, ask to redo the website within your first six months of being there. So for me, what propelled me to finally speak up, you know, five or six months in was that the understanding of our audience and more importantly, the feedback that we were getting from prospects and customers was that one, the messaging uh, was so uh, different than what they actually heard and saw with their own eyes when they get on the phone with us uh, for a demo. And the more that I talked to prospects, longtime customers, uh, new customers, it was the words that you're using to describe you know, what you do and, and how metadata can make my life easier uh, are not the words that I use. And then two, it was just a very old, you know, outdated design. So for us, we actually went into it first looking in the positioning and the messaging. And then once we locked that down, then we turned that into, you know, how do we make this into a website project. So I'd say the goals really were to make it, uh, I like to call these uh, like holy shit moments. There are at least, I'd say two or three on initial demo calls with our audience. And how do we facilitate more of those using uh, our own language on the website and the design of the website to get people more excited and really compel them to, to request a demo. So as far as goals go, I think for us, it was how do you increase demos through the website as simple as that and um, within the first 30 60 90 days uh, it was uh, it exceeded any of the goals that we had set and I think even after this uh, it still continues to exceed those goals because our end goal is just to drive as many demos as we can through the website yeah amazing I think that's the best tip is definitely don't start with the website and I think (laughs) it becomes really obvious when you're out of sync like your website and the brand and everything is out of sync with kind of the level that you've got to on your sales demos and the pattern that you're talking about or that you might be activating in your campaigns. And that's when, yeah, you're at that point where you need to start leveraging it. The uh, the other big tip that I would uh, strongly, strongly recommend is to write the copy before you start any of the design. So I used our customer advisory board. Uh, I used uh, a handful of marketers who were in, you know, initial conversations with us and, uh, I also used a tool called winter.com uh, to test um, 
really the initial website copy against cold audiences because I wanted to get feedback from the entire spectrum of people who have no idea what metadata is to people who are very familiar with what metadata is and what it can do for them. Uh, and then turning that into website copy and giving the website copy first to our agency and letting the design um, complement the copy itself instead of the other way around. Because I think when you lead with the design and then, you know, give yourself a little bit of real estate for the copy, the message doesn't land as well uh, compared to when you start with the copy and, and let the design complement it. Definitely. Amazing. Um, and I guess before I did, like, I want to actually go into like one of the campaigns that I've seen you guys run and I thought was really interesting. And that was the ABM isn't campaign. So it'd be great to understand, first of all, from you, like, how would you define ABM? Yep. And then... I think I've I read before in some of your posts that you've said, you know, not over-indexing or thinking of it as a replacement for demand gen campaigns. So how do you think about it at Metadata and like how are you blending the two approaches as a follow-up? Yep. Uh, so the first question would be, how do I define ABM? Um, I would say ABM is something that you can do. It's not necessarily something that you can buy. And to get even more specific, can you say that it again is everyone in the back. <laughs> <laughs> ABM is something that you can do. It's not something that you can buy. And what it really comes down to is it is an approach that you take for a short list of accounts where you have an unfair advantage of winning business from those accounts. So it's really a forcing and like kind of alignment mechanism uh, between sales and marketing and customer success for you to get laser focused on the accounts where you should uh, and can be winning business. Amazing. And then how are you um, like, how are you incorporating ABM into your strategy at Metadata and leveraging it, the two approaches like blended together? Do you have like an example, of, mm -hmm. of, like a practical example of how that's worked for you? Yeah. So uh, I'll say another thing. It is okay to not be doing account-based marketing. Account-based marketing is not for everybody. It depends on your contract value. It depends on the length of your sales cycle. It depends on how much uh, like content and really resourcing you have internally. And it's okay to not be doing account-based marketing. I think at the end of the day, a lot of people are, are saying that they're doing ABM because they want to be known as doing ABM, when in reality, it's just targeted demand gen at the end of the day. So for us, um, we're you know scratching the surface uh, when it comes to account-based marketing. Uh, we've spent a ton of time on our list, uh, which I think is another cheat code. The list is the most important thing without a doubt. Uh, for any ABM program. So we've got a, a pretty solid list. And then what we try to do uh, with the list is we run um, more personalized outreach, you know, whether it's from myself, whether it's from Jason Whitup, our VP of marketing, um, including specific offers that we're only offering them. Um, sometimes it's some sort of like gifting offer. Sometimes it's some, uh, you know, more assessment or like free consulting or kind of value. And we do it for a very small um, subset of the target accounts that we have. Now we're big believers in using, I think Topo came up with the name of it a few years back, the double funnel approach. Um, so we've got uh, our demand gen programs that are targeting our ideal customer profile, and those are always running in the background. And then every now and then, you know, we're a marketing team of three, so we can't do this all the time. We'll run very specific programs to the target accounts and we'll see the impact that that has in the short term. Does it make sense to roll that out to you know the next tier of accounts? Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And we're fine with that because we know that as long as you're running your 
ICP programs for your demand gen campaigns, you're still going to be delivering the results that you need to be delivering. Yeah, I really like that setup. So that's exactly what we do. So we have the always on demand gen piece. And then over the top, we have those like spotlight or we call them like trigger campaigns. So for example, we just launched one around like job join. So um, it's highly personalized, targeted to accounts, utilizing like specific data. Um, and I guess it is a form of ABM, but um, again, you, yeah, you can't buy it. You have to do the work and build it out. So yep. I, yeah. I love that question. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So how is the marketing team measured at Metadata? Um, what are the metrics that keep you up at night and kind of kick you into action at lightning speed when they take a dip? Yep. So I would say we'll start with the first part. So we are measured on opportunities generated and attributed to marketing. And then uh, we are moving towards a revenue number. So we're not there yet, but we're hoping to get there at some point next year. Um, now, those are kind of lagging indicators. So what we will also measure is uh, demos booked. And then from the demo actually being booked, um, how many of those meetings are taking place and seeing what the completion rate is, you know, in an ideal world is hundred uh, percent. We obviously don't live in an ideal world. So we tend to see, you know, where are things um, either, you know, lagging and how can we try to increase um, those metrics in the short term? And, you know, if some of the later stage metrics are, are good, that's awesome. But then, if some of the earlier stage metrics are down, that might not be a problem, you know, this week or next week, but it could be a problem next quarter. So we try to look at that uh, with the kind of a bigger picture lens, uh, not get too freaked out, uh, I would say, when some of them are down. But if it's down for, you know, two-ish weeks, then we will go all hands on deck and we'll pause some of the other stuff that we're doing to make sure that we don't uh, get too far behind on those leading indicators. Amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, we're very, we actually are rev measured on revenue at Cognizant, but um, it's very similar in terms of those things that would keep me up at night when those direct uh, demo velocity takes a dip. That is not a good day on yep. marketing stand up. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> cool. So, what is the, I mean, I love the content that you guys are putting out. I think it's really, um, like, it's a level above. It's kind of like you're doing the Dave Gerhardt, Chris Walker on, um, mass scale so like putting the marketing engine behind it it's kind of how I see it mm -hmm. and so I'm really interested to dig into that like how are you approaching content marketing at mass data what role does it play in your overall strategy yeah I would say in a lot of ways it is the strategy uh, when I started to go through the positioning and messaging exercise earlier this year um, after talking to a lot of our customers and prospects what I realized was the only thing that metadata can do for you if you don't have the content is amplify your bad marketing. So what we tried to do was then put together a content marketing strategy that addressed all the different components uh, that make up running good B2B marketing campaigns and trying to address each of those components. And to be totally honest, giving away a whole lot without asking for very much in return. Now we're able to do that because for some of the, you know, incentive demo offers that we're running, we're still able to meet our short-term number. Now, if you're not meeting your short-term number, it is a very difficult sell to your CEO or your CFO that, hey, trust us, you know, we should be investing in content, but we're not hitting our, <laughs> our opportunity number. So we earn that opportunity to make that investment and really focus on content. 
because we were hitting our short-term number. Now for us, we are, um, we're going to be launching a podcast here. We're already recording the first, uh, I think the first four or five episodes uh, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to be launching that in 2022. And you will see kind of the playbook that we're running on steroids almost because we feel like we're just scratching the surface and there's really a, a desire for this uh, type of content in the market. Uh, so you may see a whole lot more from us coming up in 2022. Look forward to it. Amazing. Thanks. So then this question I love, this was actually put in by our head of demand, Jen. So he wants to know if you had an extra $10,000 to invest in your marketing team, how would you use it? Uh, I would say I would find a really good video person and try to do uh, as much video work with them as you can. Now, video tends to be pretty expensive. Um, there's a time and a place for that type of work, but I think the video work that I see uh, and really relate to the, the most is the video work that is not super polished. It's kind of rough. It's a little rough. It's authentic. Uh, there's some humor in there. Uh, I think uh, there are a few companies out there that do this well. Winter uh, is one of them, uh, Pep Lyos company. I think they have really good commercials. Um, we're going to be making a huge bet on YouTube uh, and video in 2022. And I think uh, doing some of those pre-roll ads uh, on YouTube would be uh, where I would start. And when you say you're making a big bet on YouTube, is that YouTube SEO or you like what do you, how are you thinking about that? Because it kind of leads into my next question around generally how are you planning for next year? Yeah, I think YouTube SEO is a consideration, but like you have to have video content that's worth optimizing for in the first place. So unless you actually have the videos themselves, then I don't think YouTube really matters. Um, so for us, we're going to be looking at, you know, YouTube videos uh, on our own channel in addition to YouTube ads uh, that will run uh, as well. And in terms of more broadly, like planning for 2022, that's obviously one of the bets that you're placing. How have you like thought about, mm -hmm. yeah, strategically what you want to do next year? And it like, kind of leads into one of my favorite questions, which is this whole idea of like underpriced attention. And like, I guess potentially for you, you've seen a spot in YouTube that you could fill there. Um, but where are you finding that right now? And like, what are you investing in or looking to invest in for next year? Yeah, so we're actually going through 2022 planning right now. And I'd say the two big things for us are really the podcast from a content perspective. That's going to be our ammo. Uh, and it's not just doing the podcast, it's the repurposing of the podcast and the distribution of all of those assets. So taking a single episode like this and turning it into, you know, 12 to 15 different pieces of content, that will be the engine that you see from us next year. And then the other big thing, which I think I'm most excited about, is our strategic narrative. So uh, we feel that the ABM category probably should not be a category. So we're, we're poking the bear a little bit with ABM platforms. And I think what we're trying to do is, is truly work on our strategic narrative. It's going to be led by our CEO. And that will become our story and really the strategy for the rest of the company that will then cascade down into every single thing that you see us doing from a marketing perspective. Amazing. And then how, like, just out of interest, I mean, you guys are fast growth startup, scale up. And so how far in advance do you plan? Do you put like the skeletal pieces together for the next year, but you stay very agile? Um, or, like, yeah. How are you looking at that? Um, that is an amazing question uh, because we just went through this and we put together a three-year roadmap. I don't know what I'm going to eat for breakfast tomorrow. So the thinking that I'm going to know what we're doing in three <laughs> years is like insane. So we came out with like a uh, and we just presented this, uh, Jason Woodup presented this at our leadership offsite last week, 
it was what will marketing at metadata look like in three years? So that's the forward thinking kind of compass for us. Now for us, we're looking at, you know, tactically, what are we going to be doing, you know, for the next four quarters, like a year out? It's marketing, this stuff changes, there are curveballs, there are pandemics that happen, like it's impossible to, to predict, you know, what you're going to be doing, you know, three and four quarters from now. So we have a high level plan that's a year out. And then I think where we get fairly tactical is what do the next two quarters look like? Uh, we try to plan for about, I'd say, 80% of what we're going to be doing, just knowing that there's always going to be 20% that you uh, can't plan for. And as long as we feel good about that 80%, then we're comfortable with what the plan is. The, the key really is just not planning too much and over planning so that you can't, uh, like, you don't want to lose the ability to be flexible and kind of pivot, which we've done quite a few times recently. Definitely. And I think that's like the key is how do you balance the two? Yeah. And it's really interesting kind of uncovering that. So I guess um, I'm going to ask one this question because I think I can't really have you on and you <laughs> on the uh, podcast and not have asked how you feel about this topic. So there's a big movement oh at the moment. Um, you know, Chris Walker talks about this, Dave Gerhardt, and it's dark social, dark funnel, um, focusing on demand, gen, moving and leaving behind the gen. Like what's your take on this whole piece? I mean, that's how people buy. Uh, I'll think of perfect examples. I'm in the DGMG group. Uh, I'm in a few other Slack channels that are a little noisier than I think DGMG is, but there are often times where, you know, people have questions that I'll respond to. Some of them may be specific to metadata. Some of them might not be at all, but I know why they're asking those questions and I know how it could potentially lead them to metadata. So I'll respond. Sometimes it will lead to a follow-up conversation. Sometimes it will lead to demos and business for metadata. And sometimes it won't, but like people are constantly looking in, you know, Slack communities, LinkedIn, podcast, you name it, to know, like, and trust the companies that they, you know, want to work with. And it's how we buy. It's how we buy things in our personal lives. And I'm a big believer in it. Amazing. And then um, this question, which I, I always want to ask, um, our Hall of Famers, and I'm going to kick it off with you. Looking ahead to 2022, what would you tell other marketers to start, stop and continue to do? Ooh, that is tough. Uh, start, stop, continue. I would say start talking to your customers and start talking to your prospects. Uh, if you don't get that and get in a regular habit of doing that, then most of this stuff doesn't matter. Uh, continue doing, uh, I think continue focusing on, I think there's been a big push lately for repurposing content and not just taking, you know, this podcast transcript and slapping it up on your, your website, like not that repurposing, um, but taking a, you know, the approach that we did with the man, which is, you know, here's a 30 or 45 minute uh, recorded session how do you then turn that into, you know, 10 to 12 shorter clips, either for LinkedIn or for your YouTube account? So um, continue trying to get more out of your content instead of just repurposing, you know, for the sake of <laughs> publishing a transcript and then stop doing, I think, uh, I would say stop trying to measure everything. And for us, that's admittedly been a challenge and we've gotten to a better place um, with Gil, our CEO. He's an engineer, so he loves to quantify things. But I think it's important to strike the right balance between measuring things that you can quantify and then also being okay with things that you can't quantify. And I think for the things that fall in that category, 
I'm constantly taking screenshots of replies back to emails that I send out. I'm taking screenshots of comments that people are leaving on LinkedIn. We're using, you know, uh, call recordings and I'll have our sales team send me snippets of, you know, whenever mentions come up and being okay with, you know, hey, here's really good feedback from our audience at the end of the day. You can't measure it, but they're saying it and there's a whole lot of value in there. That's all the good stuff. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yep. Well, thank you so much. This has been an amazing episode, just as I expected. <laughs> and you're awesome. So yeah, thanks, Mark, for taking the time and um, yeah, giving us all that insight. So looking forward to um, seeing what you guys do next year and following all your content. Thank you for having me. I'm. Uh, this is the first Hall of Fame I've ever been in. So uh, I'm pretty pumped. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. This episode of Revenue Champions was brought to you by Cognizant. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast to get notified when the next one goes live. And follow Cognizant on LinkedIn and Twitter for more sales and marketing content. If you're listening on Anchor, you can leave us recorded questions or comments by hitting the message button below the title. We actually love hearing these. And if you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and share it online. We want to get the word out about Revenue Champions so we can bring you the best podcast possible. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.